Chapter Twenty One of the Mystery of the Locks by E. W. Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Twenty One. Little Ben. In answer to a note requesting his presence at the locks, Silas Davy hurried towards that part of the town as soon as he found relief from his duties at the hotel regretting as he went along that Mr. Whittle was not ahead of him with his gun, for late events had not been of a cheerful nature, and he felt the need of better company than little Ben, who dragged his weary frame into the hotel kitchen a few minutes before Silas started. Not that Silas did not love the boy, nor had he any objection to his company on this errand, but with cries of murder in the air and the reports of guns, he thought he would have preferred a stouter companion in his walk, but as they hurried along, little Ben keeping up with difficulty, Silas thought that perhaps the boy's mild goodness would keep away evil and protect them both. It occurred to him for the first time that in a storm of thunder and lightning he should like to keep close to little Ben, for though mankind might be unjust to him, the monsters of strength would pity his weakness, and strike elsewhere. Therefore Silas came to feel quite content in his company. Of the shot in the bottoms which had created so much excitement in Davy's Bend, and of the drifting boat which had been found in the flood by Thompson Benton and his men, Silas knew nothing except as he heard these matters discussed about the hotel. Although the people went to the locks in crowds the day after the body was found, and remained there from early in the morning until late at night, every new arrival being taken into one of the darkened lower rooms to look at the dead man, Silas was not of the number. He was afraid to look at his friend's face, fearing he could see in it an accusation of his neglect to give warning of the shadow, so he remained away and went about his duties in a dreamy way, starting at every sound, as though he feared that the people had at last found out his guilt, and had come to accuse him for not notifying them of the danger of which he had been aware. The receipt of the note had frightened him too, and he felt sure that when he entered the presence of Annie Doris, she would break down and inquire why he had robbed her of a husband in his usual thoughtless way. Perhaps the sight of little Ben in his weakness and goodness would plead for him, so he picked the child up and carried him on the way as far as his own weak arms would permit. Mrs. Wedge soon appeared in answer to his ring at the lock's gate, and admitted him into the hall where he had heard the steps on the stair on the night when there was alarm because of Doris's absence in the bottoms. It was dark in the hall now, as it was then, and while Silas waited for Mrs. Wedge to fasten the door at which they had entered, he listened eagerly for the footsteps, and when he did not hear them, he trembled at the sound of his own as he finally went up the stairs behind Mrs. Wedge, followed by little Ben. Going up to the door leading into the room which had been occupied by his friend, Silas was ushered into the presence of Annie Doris, who was seated near the window where the shadow had twice appeared. There was a great change in her manner, 
he noticed at once. The pretty face, which had formerly always carried the suspicion of a laugh, was now distinguished by a settled grief, and it was pale and haggard. Her pale face was in sharp contrast to the dress of mournful black, and the good fellow who was always trying to do right, but who was always in doubt as to which was right and which was wrong, would have given his life cheerfully to have been a month younger. While Silas stood near the doorway, changing his hat from one hand to the other in confusion, he noticed that tears started to her eyes. "'Please don't cry,' Silas said, walking towards her. "'I want to tell you the guilty part I have taken in this dreadful affair, but I cannot muster up the courage when there are tears in your eyes. Please don't cry.' Annie Doris bravely wiped her tears away at this request, and looked at Silas with a face indicating that if his presence had opened her wounds afresh, she would try and conceal it. "'I am oppressed with the fear that I am to blame for this,' he continued in desperate haste. "'And I must tell you and get it off my mind, even though you send for the sheriff and have me arrested. I cannot contain the secret any longer now that I am in your presence.' Little Ben had crawled into a chair on entering the room, and was already fast asleep, with his head hanging on his breast, dreaming, let us hope, of kind treatment and of a pleasant home. "'Within a month after Allan Doris came to Davy's Bend,' Silas said, seating himself near Mrs. Doris, "'Tug and I discovered that he was shadowed by someone who came and went at night. For more than a year,' until the day before it happened, we saw the strange man at intervals, but Tug said it would unnecessarily alarm you both to know it, so we kept it to ourselves. I am sorry we did it, but we thought then that it was for the best. I always wanted to tell you, but Tug, who worshipped you both, would never consent to it until the morning your husband went into the bottoms alone. When he came here and found that he had gone, he followed him, and has not been seen since. The day before, while rowing in the bottoms, I met the shadow, and when Tug heard this, he came at once to warn your husband not to venture out alone. Annie Doris made no reply. Perhaps this was no more than she expected from Silas, whom she had sent for to question. The shot which once came in at that window was fired by Tug, Davy continued, pointing to the pane which had been broken on the night of Allan Doris's marriage to Annie Benton, and he fired at the shadow as it was looking in at your husband. For more than a year Tug has carried a gun and has tried to protect you, but he made a mistake in not giving warning of this stealthy enemy. Of late months he has spent his nights in walking around this place, trying to get a shot at the shadow. And though some people accuse him of a horrible crime because of his absence from town, he is really on the track of the guilty man and will return to prove it. I cannot tell you how sorry I am to see you in mourning, but I hope you believe I did what I thought was for the best." 
When Silas had concluded, they were both silent and thoughtful, and the heavy breathing of little Ben was all the sound that could be heard. This attracted the attention of Silas, and he said respectfully, "'Would you mind kissing the boy, ma'am? The poor little fellow is so friendless and has such a hard time of it that he makes my heart ache. If you will be good enough, I will tell him of it, and he will always remember it gratefully. Poor chap! I don't suppose he was ever kissed in his life.' Annie Doris went over to the sleeping boy, and after kissing him, as had been requested, picked him up and laid him down on a lounge which stood in the room. "'There was always something fierce and mysterious about my husband,' Mrs. Doris said after a time. "'But both attracted me to him. I could not help it. A hundred times he has offered to tell me his story, but I did not care to hear it so that now I know nothing about him except that he was the most worthy gentleman I ever knew, and combined all those qualities which my heart craved. I knew when we were first married that some such result as this was probable, but I could not resist him, and I do not regret it now. Three months of such happiness as I have known will repay me for future years of loneliness, and his kindness and consideration are sweet memories which console me even now while my grief is so fresh. He was manly and honorable with me in every way, and the fault, if there has been a fault, was my own. I am sure that he was a better man because of his misfortune. I believe now that trouble purifies men and makes them better and the more I studied him, the more I was convinced that there were few like him, that a trifling thing had ruined his life, and that there were hundreds of men less honorable who were more fortunate. Even now I do not care to know more of him than I already know. I fear that this is a fault, but I knew him better than anyone else in the world, and his manner was so pathetic at times and his love for me always so pronounced, that, though I am now a young woman, I expect to spend my life in doing honor to a noble memory. There was something so womanly in her manner that Silas was convinced that she would live only to honor the memory of his friend. There was inexpressible sadness in her face, but there was also strength and capacity and love and honor. I am the one person whose good opinion he cared for, she said again, and I forget everything except his love for me and his manliness in everything. It is nothing to me what he was away from here. A single atom in the human sea, he may have committed a wrong while attempting to do right and came here a penitent, trying to right it but as I knew him he was worthy of any woman's profoundest admiration, and he shall receive it from me as long as I live. The stream of life leads upwards to heaven against a strong current, and, knowing myself, I do not wonder that occasionally the people forget and float down with the tide. He has told me that he had but one apology to make to anyone, to me for not finding me sooner. 
This was a pretty and an undeserved compliment, but it was evident that in his own mind he did not feel that he had wronged anyone, and I feel so. I have no idle regrets and do not blame you and Tug. On the contrary, I thank you both for your thoughtful care. When Tug returns, as I am sure he will, bring him here. Who has not wounded their best friends in trying to befriend them? Though you too have grievously wounded me, I recognize the goodness of your motives and feel grateful. She got up at this and started toward the door, motioning Silas to follow. From the dark hall she stepped through the door which Doris had never entered alive, but he had been carried there dead. A dim light burned near the door, and there was something in the air, a taint not to be described but to be remembered with dread, which made Silas think of a sepulchre. On a raised platform, in the room to which the steps of poor Helen were always leading, stood a metallic burial case, with a movable lid showing the face under glass. The face was so natural that Silas thought it must have been preserved in some manner, for his friend seemed to be quietly sleeping, and he could not realize that he had been dead a week. Even before Silas had taken his hasty glance, Annie Doris had knelt beside the inanimate clay of her husband, and he thought he had better go away, he could think of nothing else to do, and leave her. And this he did, only stopping at the door to see a picture which he never forgot, the coffin, the sobbing woman, the dim light, and the gloomy hangings of the room. On being awakened, little Ben shielded his face with his hands, as if expecting a blow, which was his usual greeting on opening his eyes. But recognizing his friend, he contentedly followed him down the stairs and out at the iron gate into the street. Davy was not a large man or a strong man, but little Ben found it difficult to follow him and was compelled to ask his friend to stop and rest before they reached the hotel. When they finally reached the kitchen, they found it deserted, and Silas hastily placed meat and bread before the boy. This he devoured like a hungry wolf, and Davy wondered that such a little boy had so much room under his jacket. "'They don't feed you overly well at the farm, do they, Ben?' Silas inquired. The boy had turned from the table, and was sitting with his hands clasped around his knees, and his bare feet on the upper round of the chair. After looking at his companion a moment, he thoughtfully shook his head. "'You work hard enough, heaven knows,' Silas said again, in a tone which sounded like a strong man pitying someone less unfortunate but there was little difference between the two except age, for there was every reason to believe that should little Ben's cough get better, he would become such a man as Silas was. "'I do all I can,' little Ben answered, "'but I am so weak that I cannot do enough to satisfy them. I haven't had enough sleep in years. I think that is the trouble with me.' 
"'That cough, little Ben, is not the result of loss of sleep. You must have contracted that in going out to work in the early morning, illy clad, while other children were asleep. "'I'm going to tell you something, poor fellow,' Silas said, "'which will please you. While you were asleep up at the locks tonight, the lady kissed you.' Little Ben put his hand apologetically to his mouth and coughed with a hoarse bark that startled Silas, for he noticed that the cough seemed worse every time the boy came to town. But he seemed to be only coughing to avoid crying, for there were tears in his eyes. "'You are not going to cry, Ben,' Silas said in a voice that indicated that he was of that mind himself. "'I think not, sir,' the boy replied. When I first went to the farm, I cried so much that I think that the tears have all left me. I was only thinking it was very kind of the lady, for nobody will have me about except you, Mr. Davy. My father and mother, they won't have me around, and I am in Mr. Quade's way, and his wife and children have so much trouble of their own that they cannot pay attention to me. They live very poorly and work very hard, sir, and I do not blame them. But I often regret that I am always sick and tired, and that no one seems to care for me. Little Ben seemed to be running the matter over in his mind, for he was silent a long while. In rummaging among his recollections he found nothing pleasant, apparently, for when he turned his face to Silas, it showed the quivering and pathetic distortion which precedes an open burst of grief. "'If you don't care,' he said, "'I believe I will cry. I can't help it, since you told me about the lady.' The little fellow sobbed aloud at the recollection of his hard life, all the time trying to control himself and wiping his eyes with his rough sleeve. He was such a picture of helpless grief that Silas Davy turned his back and appeared to be rubbing something out of his eyes, first one and then the other. "'I am sorry I am not able to help you, Ben,' the good fellow said, turning toward the boy again, after he had recovered himself. "'But I am of so little consequence that I am unable to help anyone. I cannot help myself much.' I have rather a hard time getting along, too, and I am a good deal like you, Ben, for, though I work all the time, I do not give much satisfaction." Little Ben looked at his companion curiously. "'I thought you were very happy here, sir,' he said, with plenty to eat every day. You are free to go to the cupboard whenever you are hungry. But often I am unable to sleep because I am so hungry. You never go to bed feeling that way, do you, Mr. Davy? No, he replied, almost smiling at the boy's idea that anyone who had plenty to eat must be entirely content. But I am a shiftless sort of man, and I don't get on very well. I always want to do what is right and fair, but somehow I don't always do it. I sometimes think, though, that I am more unjust to myself than to anyone else. 
it causes me a good deal of regret that I am not able to help such as you, Ben. If I were able, I would like to buy you a suit of clothes. Summer is coming on, sir, and these will do very well, the boy replied. Yes, but you were very thinly clad last winter, Ben, and oftentimes I could not sleep from thinking of how cold you were when out in the fields with the stock. If ever there was a good boy, you are one, Ben. But you are not treated half so well as the bad boys I know. This is what worries me, as hunger worries you. I am sorry to hear you are poor, sir, little Ben said. Not that I want you to do more for me than you have done, but you have always been so kind to me that I thought you must be rich to afford it. You always have something for me when I come to town, and I am very thankful to you. What a friendless child, Davy thought, to consider what he had done for him the favor of a rich man. A little to eat and small presents on holidays. He had been able to do no more than that, but since no one else was kind to the boy, these were magnificent favors in his eyes. "'On with cheek did the lady kiss me, Mr. Davy?' the boy inquired later in the night. "'On this one,' Davy replied, touching his left cheek with his fingertips. "'I was thinking it was that one,' little Ben continued. "'There has been a glow in it ever since you told me. "'I should think that the boys who have mothers who do not hate them are very happy.' Do you know whether they are, Mr. Davy? I know they ought to be, he said, but some of them are very indifferent to their mothers. I have never had any experience myself. My own mother died before I could remember. It seems to me, little Ben continued, that if I were as well off as some of the boys I see, I should be entirely satisfied. I must start home soon, or I will not get there in time to be called for tomorrow's work. And when I creep into the hay, where I sleep after coming to see you, I intend to think that the kiss the lady gave me was the kiss of my mother, and that she does not hate me any more. For such as you, little Ben, there must be a heaven. The men who are strong in doubt, as well as in the world's battles, Come to the conclusion when they remember that there can be no other reward for such as you and Silas Davy, for your weakness is so unfit for this life that it must be a burden which can only be reckoned in your favor in the master's house, where there are many mansions. If there were not so many happy children, little Ben said again, perhaps I should not mind it so much, but I see them wherever I go and I cannot understand why my lot is so much harder than theirs. My bones ache so, and I want to sleep and rest so much that I cannot help feeling regret. Except for this I hope I would be happy as you are. Silas Davy is anything but a happy man, little Ben, but being a good man he does not complain and does the best he can. So when the boy soon after started for the farm, and Silas walked with him to the edge of the town, 
he pretended to be very well satisfied with himself and with everything around him. Indeed, he was almost gay, but it was only mockery to encourage his unfortunate companion. "'Next Christmas, Ben,' Silas said as they walked along, "'you shall have—' He paused a moment to consider his financial possibilities. "'A sled from the store.' "'That is too much,' Ben replied, with hope and gladness in his voice. "'A sled will cost a great deal, for the painting and striping must come high. I would like to have a sled more than anything else, but I am afraid you would rob yourself in buying it. I am afraid that is too much, Mr. Davy.' "'It will not cost as much as you expect.' and I can easily save the money between this and Christmas," the good fellow replied. I have always wanted to do it, and I will, and it will be a pleasure. Remember, Ben, when you feel bad off in the future, what you are to get when you come to see me Christmas morning. I will not forget, sir. When you own the sled, and I have had the pleasure of giving it to you, "'We will feel like very fortunate fellows, won't we, Ben?' Silas said again, cheerfully, as they walked along. "'We shall feel as though we are getting along in the world, I should think, Mr. Davy,' the boy replied. They had reached the edge of the town by this time, and Davy stopped to turn back. He took the boy's hand for a moment and said, "'Remember the sled, Ben. Good night.' "'Good night, sir. I will not forget.' Silas had scarcely said good night to him before he was lost to his sight. He was such a very little fellow. End of chapter 21 Recording by Roger Moline